0: I'm a writer. I love writers and I coach writers. So it makes sense that I'd interview writers from all areas, blogging, TV, film, songwriting, podcasting, but also the new writers, the first timers that did it, that took the plunge because at one point they heard from someone, you should write a book about that. As many of you know, I come from a two-decade run of working in the movies, so a chord of nostalgia is plucked in me when I get to interview an entertainment writer on the show, and in TV nonetheless, which I could never break into. Nick Morton co-wrote the first season of Cooper's Bar for AMC, and the lead actress, Ray Seahorn for Better Call Saul, is actually nominated for an Emmy for his writing, and so I'm really excited to have him on the show. He's also a movie producer. Welcome to the show, Nick.
1: Thank you. It's great to be here. It's nice to be talking about writing, I guess. I feel like I don't do it very much.
0: Well, we're going to do it for the next 30 (laughs) minutes. You're also a producer, though, right? I wanted to kind of get that out of the way. You produced Ray with Jamie Foxx. How did that happen?
1: I mean, to tell you the truth, I was like a, uh, I went to college. I was on my way to become an investment banker. I was really not excited about it. I figured if I became an investment banker, I'd be dead from a cocaine overdose in like 18 months. And I was, I, but I didn't know anything else. I was taking a screenwriting course and this guy came in to teach us how to sell our screenplays in Hollywood. He was an agent and someone asked him how he became an agent. And he was like, oh, I was on my way to wall street. I wasn't excited about it. And I moved to Hollywood and slept on a friend's couch and got a job working at one of the agencies, which I was like, oh, wow, I could, I could, I could do that. Like, why don't I do that? So I did that. I worked at William Morris and I was like an assistant in the independent film division. And then I became, I was like sort of a terrible assistant. (laughs) And William Morris,
0: for people that are listening, is there's like a couple agencies in Hollywood that represent all the big players, right? All the big writers, all the big actors. It's William Morris, CAA, Endeavor. Is there another? Those are the three, right?
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I worked in the independent film division and it was was super cool. I mean, it was unlike anything I'd ever done before. You like sit down at your desk at, you know, 830 in the morning, though I was never on time the phone starts ringing, you pick it up. And the next time you look up five hours have passed and it's time to go to lunch. And you're like, what the hell just happened? And you just do that every, every, everything you come back after lunch and you do that every day and it's sort of exhausting, but you know, it gives you a way to sort of really understand the landscape of Hollywood. And by the time I'd spent a year doing it, I was like, wow, I'm actually a really good assistant. I could kind of go work for anyone in Hollywood and be Value added. So I just kind of waited till someone super powerful came along where I could go be their assistant. And that was Mike Metavoy. He oh, wow. was starting, he's he was a starting, legend. Yeah. You weren't legend. scared
0: of him? You weren't scared of all these stories of the, you know, nightmare? I mean, I
1: guess I was, but I had kind of accepted that that was like the price of doing business in Hollywood, you know, like if you wanted to mm. do this thing, I mean, you could always leave if you wanted, but like, That was what Hollywood was. And if like that wasn't if if you if that wasn't a price you were willing to pay, then sure, you did you could you can leave (laughs) was the way I guess (laughs) I saw it. And let me and, just go
0: Let me just go back to, we'll, we'll put a pin on this for one second, because I just wanted to ask, did you know at all at this point you wanted to be a writer? I mean, as a young boy, had you, yeah, you know, as yeah, a young lad? I, I okay, so you had that idea in your mind.
1: It's funny, I was always interested in writing, and I had, over the summer before I came to Los Angeles, I was at a lunch with some family friends, and there was a big agent there, this woman, Bodie Boatwright and someone introduced me and they said, "Oh, this is Nick Morton. He's a writer." And Bodie was so sweet and interested in me.
0: Oh. And then
1: she's like, "So what do you write?" And I said, I-, "I was so insecure about the idea that I could write. I really didn't believe right. I could do it." So I was like, "Actually, I'm not really a writer. I'm a I'm a producer." And she lost interest. <clears throat> Almost instantaneously, I just saw the light go out in her eyes. Like, wow. Who cares?
0: <laughs> oh my God. Because and- producers are like a dime a dozen, really. I mean, everybody can say they're producer, but not everyone can say they're a writer because as a writer, you have to show material. As a producer, you could just be like, you could just buy lunch.
1: And, you know, writing, writing's really hard. At that point, I really didn't have anything to show. And I was like, I'm really not going out to Hollywood to become a writer. I'm going out to Hollywood to not become a banker. (laughs) And and,
0: and do lots of cocaine, right?
1: Yeah, I really just, (laughs) you know, my, my, the world I grew up in was full of lawyers and bankers. And I didn't really under, like, I didn't really understand it. And I was sort of worried that if I went down that path, I was going to spend the entire time sort of second guessing myself and sort of Mm. turning to other people for advice instead of kind of charting my own path. And at least in Hollywood, I felt like, oh, I can figure this will be mine. You know, no one no one will uh, be able to influence me doing this because no one I know knows anything about it. And that's a plus for the black sheep. Yeah. So I just kept like trying, you know, I just kept trying new things. Like I, I, didn't know what I wanted to do, but I was like, Oh, I'll try to work at an agency. And I it became clear to me that that was not right for me. And then I was like, Oh, I'll go into production. And I really, what I had seen of producers on the agency side is they were always just calling and begging for things and they had no leverage. And Right. I was like, I want to have leverage. I want to go work for a company that has money because that's all from the agency side. I was like, that's all they care about. Like, I right. don't care who, What? what the new guy in town is is all about if he's got money he's he's golden new
0: guy yeah he's the one exactly
1: so uh mike metavoy at that point was trying to raise like a billion dollars to start a independent film studio with an overall deal at sony and so it seemed like a great place and i went i was his assistant and my sort of basic strategy was i am going to work so hard and ingratiate myself in so many ways to this guy that he will feel compelled to promote me and he did like I remember one one time I was in the office on a Sunday night at 10 o'clock and he was actually with my like one of my immediate superiors they had been to some event and he, she told me later that they were in the car driving home and he was like watch this I'm gonna call the office and Nick will be there and sure enough I was I was not there every Sunday at 10 o'clock oh, but on that God. Sunday I <laughs> happened to be there and he's like oh hey Nick how are you, you know whatever and I, you know, You're I just passionate. Kind of demonstrated that I yeah. would do anything for my job. And so I got promoted in that position. And, you know, I stayed there for a couple of years. We made a lot of movies. We made like the Urban Legends series and we did Lake Placid. We did the Thin Red Line. We did uh, oh, Andy great Fleming's movie. movie Dick. The People versus Larry Flint. The Mirror Has Two Faces. It was like a really great experience. But like after there was a point in that progression, Mike every so often would turn to the head of production and say, what are my next four movies and what's your plan to make them? And it would send the entire creative team into a spiral of panic as we were trying to figure out, you know, what was a reasonable strategy to make these movies. And some of my bosses had left and, you know, it, it had kind of become like this octagon UFC fighting ring amongst the junior executives that were <laughs> still there, you know, who right. was buy for power.
0: Right. Oh, that's and too at bad. some point
1: we're in this staff meeting and he turns to me and he goes, Nick, what are my next four movies and what's your plan to make them? And I was like, that's the question they asked the head of production. Like, why is he asking this to me? And because I was not getting paid head of production money. And so I went back to my office and had a little think about it. And then I went into him and I was like, look, man, I really appreciate the vote of confidence, but like, (laughs) this is an awful lot of responsibility for what you're paying me. And he was like, you know, this is this is a job you can do anything you want with. Make this company what you'd like. And I looked at the guys who were sort of at my level who were going to destroy me. And I was like, I think I'll just get out of this job. (laughs) Um, (laughs) I think actually before that, I had I had organized a plan for the next four movies and I was in my office and I had I had Rick Rick has had been my boss and he had left. And I had his desk and I figured out my four movies and I was really excited. And then I pulled out, he had one of those like things that you put your keyboard on. And he had taped a note card with his next four movies. And this had been like, this note card must have been 12, 12 months old. And it was the same four movies that I had chosen. And they had not gotten made in the past year and they probably weren't going to get made oh, in the next year, God. and I was like, I- "Oh, I'm doomed! I'm totally right. doomed!" Right?
0: Did you feel not original at that point? Was well, Ray not original? Movies? It
1: just felt like the 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 challenge was not a rational challenge. Like you could make yeah. a rational plan, and it was just going to be fate or luck. Anyway, at that point, uh, an old one of my very early jobs had been really before I started working at William Morris, I'd worked as a receptionist somewhere trying to teach myself how to type. And the guy who had started that company had partnered with Philip Anschutz, who was like a multi-billionaire who now owns the Staples Center and one of the soccer team. He owns so much stuff. And they were starting a new studio and they asked me to come be like the vice president of development, you know, sort of handle writers and scripts and stuff. And it was in that capacity. That was like an independent studio. It operated Mm -hmm. more... A little bit more like a production company than Mike Metavoy's company had. And so, there, as an executive, you took a credit on the films that you worked on, which is how I ended up. Like Ray was one of my films. And so, we financed it. And so, I took a credit on that film. I took a credit on Sahara. There's probably 10 movies we made there that I took some sort of producing credit on.
0: Well, that's fantastic. Um, yeah, yeah that that's. Fun. I mean, that's a great that's a great walk for the listener through Hollywood. So, what was your first gig as a writer out of this paradigm? Right. So you're you're yeah. you're doing well, mostly it's executive like, work.
1: You know, I think it's uh, honestly impossible to talk about my career without talking about um, my addiction. And like, the truth is like through it all, I was a pretty hard partier and like, whatever I'd show up for these executive jobs. I'm pretty good under pressure, pretty polished, but like, I didn't really understand it. And like, it didn't make any sense to me. And I would sort of, you know, go home and get fucked up. And then I was just kind of living a life that I, I wasn't really that interested in living. Like it's, there's this a thing I was saying recently to somebody where as an executive, you're at once responsible for everything and nothing. At and it's just kind time. of mystifying like which one of the falling knives that you're trying to catch is going to slit your throat. Right. And I just, it was just so sort of terrifying. I remember when we were making Ray, I was the only person who was like watching the dailies and the dailies were stunning on Ray. Like you just like the dailies it's every day. You you look at the footage that they shot the day before and uh, or that day, depending on how quick the the footage is getting to you. And it's usually pretty boring. Like the, the dailies on Ray were like, they were, they were just like heart stopping. You were literally like, Oh my God, this performance is bonkers. But eventually that, you know, that job sort of fell apart. The whole movie business changed because of the digitization of Hollywood and the financial crisis and the writer's guild strike and the rise of Marvel and all all these various things that sort of made the kind of movies that I was making really migrate to television. I mean, like if you're looking for now Netflix and
0: they're not good. (laughs)
1: I mean, at this point, it was sort of like all the studios had built up these independent labels to make the kinds of movies that I was making. And then they were making them at very expensive price points that weren't recouping their money because there was no longer a DVD market. And all those companies went they they went away, whether it was, you know, the Weinstein Company or warner you know paramount advantage or you know the the warner independent label or fine line or new line you know they all went bye-bye they all and, went away um,
0: except for sony classics sony classics is sony still classics
1: around. still and you know you've got a24 there are people that have t- walked into that space Bleecker street but you know if i had really understood my job as an executive and what i had accomplished as an executive i would have gone into television you know but i just felt like and now my- you are
0: though now you're in television
1: Yeah. And so basically, but I didn't do that. I went and I made independent movies for a long time, which is something I still do focusing on first time filmmakers. And I got sober in that process. And I just started to, you know, this, this percolating dream from 20 years ago of being a writer had never stopped percolating.
0: Beautiful. 20 years. (laughs) Wow.
1: In my, you know, sobriety, I was actually able to show up for that version of what I wanted to be in a, so a way like I never 40? had before.
0: You're 40 at this yeah, point. Yeah, I got
1: sober at 40,
0: and I I was
1: writing stuff, but just not very well or consistently. You know, mm-hmm. you really have you to hadn't show committed. Up for- every day, you know, there'd be stuff I would never finish. And I found, I found a, a funny writing partner, which helped me. And she and I wrote a couple of scripts together that I thought were really great that I still think are pretty great in a lot of ways that didn't really go anywhere. But I, I found I really enjoyed it. And then, you know, one of the things that really also helped me a lot was I started doing stand-up and really was through stand-up was able to develop some confidence that My voice as a storyteller was not only unique, but it was it connected with people and it was commercial, like people wanted to come and see me tell jokes. And I was like, wow, that's that gave me a lot of confidence as a a creative person to do things on my own and feel like I could do things on my own. And it's then- sort of
0: like it's sort of like when you are, I mean, uh, listeners know I'm in AA, but I know like when I first started having to give pitches in AA, a pitch in AA is like you talk for 10 minutes about like what it was like, what it's like now and, and how you did it, how you got sober. I used to be terrified about those. And now I just get up and I'm like, whatever. I'm yeah, funny. Yeah. I'm dramatic. Yeah, and it really I helped mean- me to speak in front of people and be my own voice and my own person, even in my writing.
1: Well, I think writing's that way too, you know, you, you, you can put so much, I mean, I still do. I still struggle in front of the page. I'm struggling this morning in front of the page, but like, you know, you, the more you're like, the the, the more you do it, the lower the stakes are in some ways. It's like stand up is that way. If you're doing it every night, well, you bomb one night, who cares? You got six other nights that to to make it work, Mm -hmm. Um, you know, and if you're showing up and writing every day, then it's like, yeah, you have a bad day. You'll, you know, maybe tomorrow will be better, but if you're showing up once a week And, you know, you've given yourself four hours on Sunday morning to write and it doesn't go well. Well, you know, that feels like a catastrophe sometimes because you're like, well, I don't know if I'm going to get back here for another seven days, you know
0: yeah exactly and then you think about all the things you didn't do on sunday and it could be committed to your craft and now you feel like a jerk because it didn't work out yeah. let me ask you this when you sit down to write like you're saying you did this morning you know i we all have our thing that we're good at as writers and for me it's dialogue like i'm an excellent right. dialogue writer i think that comes from all the screenwriting years so i'm constantly saying to my book clients write more dialogue write more right dialogue people don't want just page and page and page of paragraph you know what is your special like Nick Morton skill
1: I mean I feel like the thing that gets me going is to actually I mean I write for the screen so is to have the image and then try to translate the image to the page like I'm constantly seeing the movie and so when I'm writing I'm always asking myself how the scene works what's the opening shot you know like how are we going to progress through this scene in a visual way from beginning, middle to end? And then, of course, I mean, the other most, most important thing is what is the point of view? Whose scene is this? What are they trying to accomplish? And to what degree do they succeed or fail?
0: What is their um, goal? What is their goal? Yeah. What, is their, what is their motivation, right? For you as the writer to extrapolate that from the character and then put it on the page
1: yeah exactly so I mean as far as like the the problem just to like finish telling the story basically what happened was I was involved in Jill Soloway's first movie she's now Joey Soloway but at the time she was Jill the movie was called Afternoon Delight it was about like a Silver Lake uh, affluent Silver Lake housewife whose marriage is kind of hit the the doldrums and she befriends this stripper and sort of hires her to come live in their Silver Lake house as a nanny, but it's, you know, kind of unclear what her goal is, but really she's just hell bent on exploring her sexuality at this sort of midpoint in her life. And it's so funny and beautiful. And really I loved working on that movie so much. Catherine Holland stars in it. And I learned a lot from Joey in the way that they were so open to feedback and criticism and, not mm. taking it all too seriously. And um it's the best in- kind
0: of artist for sure.
1: And in the aftermath of that, they were going to do transparent for Amazon. And they sent it to my boss and I. <laughs> I really shouldn't tell this story, but I always do because it's the truth. And I read it and I was like, I can do that. Like that is a version of television that I understand and that excites me. Oh wow. And I set that was the out- catalyst writing a a a pilot that got made it's called halfway there it comes out on crackle hopefully this month that stars blythe danner and matthew lillard and it's basically about a, a sober living house where matthew lillard is running a sober living house and it's running out of money and he has this rich mother and he ends out moving her into the sober living house because she's an alcoholic and she's oh, that's a,
0: great. What a great premise.
1: And the, you know, it sort of solves his financial problems, but uh, now he has to deal they, with this
0: alcoholic mother <laughs>
1: has to deal with all the other problems that he's spent, you know, six years sort of coming to terms with, and right. it all goes really, really badly. And it's, it, you know, and it's funny. And I work at a financing and production company and I gave uh, my boss there, Rick Rosenthal, this, the, the pilot, And he was like, let's make this. And so
0: that's fantastic.
1: He directed it and he's friends with Blythe Danner. So he gave it to Blythe and Blythe got really excited about playing the mom. And then Matthew Lillard was always both of ours first choice to play the lead. And and as soon as Blythe signed on, Matthew signed on. And then we, you know, just reached out to like people that we'd worked with in the past to fill out the other roles, which is like Sarah Shahi and Isai Morales and Matt O'Leary and Jacob Wasaki and... That project got made and that that really felt like a, you know, a real writing
0: win for you. Well,
1: also a culmination of the whole journey that like, you know, so much of like my, you know, the, the, the good stuff that's happened to me in the creative world. I sometimes I'm like, well, you know, if I had stopped drinking, this probably would have happened anyway. (laughs) And then I look right. at the thing that actually got made and it's all about recovery. So
0: it's amazing. That isn't really, it so funny. I mean, you yeah. almost needed that experience to know what it was like to be an alcoholic yeah. and then yeah, to like know I, what I, it was like to get sober. So right from I what never could know. Have,
1: it's funny. Actually the idea for the show occurred to me before I got sober because a friend had been in, in a car accident and had ended up in a sober living house. And I was like, what a great environment for a show. But I was like, I can't write that because I
0: I'm still a drunk. don't know anything about it. <laughs> you know, I don't really <laughs> right. know
1: anything about recovery right. or alcoholism. Or, I'm
0: still in my cups. Yeah. And
1: then yeah. you know, then I got sober, and suddenly I was like, you know what? Actually, after a year of sobriety, I was like, I actually do know something about this, and this is maybe something I should write. It took a long time. Like I wrote a very a very unconventional version of that script because that's what I had seen Joey Soloway do with Transparent. And I am not Joey Soloway.
0: Right, this goes back to what's your style for you, right? Well,
1: it's a little bit of that, but then also the marketplace. Like the marketplace is going to give a veteran creator a lot more leeway than a first-timer. A first-timer comes in, you've got to prove that you can do the normal thing before they're going to say, Hey, let's, let's do the crazy thing with you. Right. Um,
0: Exactly. Exactly. You have to, you have to prove (laughs) your chops. I wanted to ask you something else too. I looked up some of your other writing Uh, you've written for, I guess their online sites, Mr. Porter and the scoop and yep. You know, I read one of your columns on kids' birthday parties in LA, which I thought <laughs> right. was absolutely humorous and super cantankerous, and it was like an expose. And I love this line: you know, I was going to pay four hundred and seventy-five dollars for someone to haul dirty crates of Matchbox cars out of a creepy van, set them up in ramps on my driveway. We're lucky we don't call the cops. And it's like for any parent who's realized that having a, a, a birthday party either at the beach, which costs you about six cents or in your apartment with a bunch of princess dresses, like there's such a scam on these like parties. And I loved your American girl doll story. That was like, that oh was, that, that was hysterical here. You are in Hollywood. You know, you've got a job, you've got access, you've got some, you know, decent, decent accolades. What sort of drives you to write these sidebar pieces? I mean,
1: honestly, like, that of all the things i've written that is probably one of my favorite things i've ever done like i'm so thankful for that opportunity to like memorialize the experience of being a parent in a, a way that was pretty free and and funny and true with like a really talented editor and John Brody at Le Scoop. Oh, did, you had an did,
0: editor help you too. I did
1: six. Uh, yeah, they basically, John saw my stand-up and was like, oh my God. I mean, John and I had known each other in Hollywood. Then he'd seen some of the stand-up. He was working as an editor at Le Scoop and at Mr. Porter at one point. And he was like, oh, hey, we should hire you to write some humor pieces for the magazine. And um, he hired me to sort of do this. Like the idea was like sort of the the dad who's in charge of the kids, like that column. And there was, um, there was another comedian who was writing the mom in charge of the kids column, which was really funny too. I'm forgetting who it was, someone much more famous than me. And then there was, um know there was like a gay dad there was so there were a bunch of so every you know sort of rotating weeks there would be some sort of parenting column from a different point of view and i got paid for it and i really loved it and it was like it was so
0: relatable it was such a uh,
1: honestly it was a a real classy uh writing gig to tell you the truth In that like you know he's john was great editor and like they put it together with great artwork they had a, a guy named adam nickel in australia who was drawing the original cartoons for it every week. And yeah, no, I'm, and the things like that, just, they don't come along very much. It's like the, I've done other stuff where it's like, you're writing a gift buying guide for like USA Today and it's like so much work (laughs) to do it well. It's like so much work and it's zero money. And you're like, what am I doing?
0: I know. I know. I was like looking up how to write for travel and leisure because I had a really funny piece I wanted to write about like finally hiring a concierge in Paris and like what I went through to like deal with my limiting beliefs about money to get this concierge and you know how I behaved with the concierge and like I looked it up and I was like oh my god like travel the guidelines and the work and the effort then they pay you like 500 bucks, you know, but it's it's status, you know, you get like published in something like that. And, you know, you have these bylines now as a writer. Yeah. yeah.
1: I mean, it's good experience. I think all, you know, work begets work, you know, and to tell you the truth, like that parenting column, so many people in Hollywood read it. And there were so many people talking to me about doing a series or something based on it
0: right it does um, it does show i looked on mr porter i couldn't find anything it was a men's clothing it was like did he write about men's shoes i mean what <laughs>
1: up- oh gosh you know it's so funny i just took down my website because i was like i noticed a, that I'm, i went
0: to your website and i was looking for your for your pieces on it
1: yeah i so don't. i don't know i was in a moment of like why wow, i'm spending too much money on, on all this stuff that nobody ever uses um, I'm going to rebuild it on my Drunk logs website, but anyway, um, no, that was, that was a pretty funny piece that I, I only did. I think I only did one piece for Mr. Porter. I did. I mean, I wrote some other things that ultimately they never published, but it was basically like, they, they would do a week, like a monthly column called tribes. And they would talk about like unconventional, funny tribes. So the idea was kind of like, what does your dog say about you? And so I just did like very like I sort of went to dog parks and just like watched people hang out with their dogs and like and then sort of some of the people that I knew you know just like but as a parent there and so I'm trying to remember like what were some of the dog
0: parent funny ones It was like
1: my my neighbor who would like you know he'd walk his dog every day and sort of like the joke was that like it was the only that like he hadn't wanted to get the dog in the first place, but now at least he had like five minutes of the day to himself to get away from his family and walk the dog.
0: Oh, that's great. Um, that's great. Well, I, I think that it's, it, you know, I looked for it and, and like you said, people found your work and, and you got opportunities. And I say to clients all the time, you know, write articles, publish, even if your yeah, book yeah. is like, have you ever thought about writing a book?
1: Well, it's funny. I did like, I, I pitched that parenting column as a book to a bunch of places. You know, the the feedback I got, I mean, I had a pretty fancy agent who was a, a friend doing it for me, and he was going to pretty fancy publishers. And, you know, the feedback I got was like, oh, you know, he's not famous, you know, to, to, to actually sell this kind of book. It, it's great if it's coming from, you know, whatever Adam Sandler. I I mean, it doesn't have to be obviously that famous, but like someone who has a real, real profile, we could publish it. But like, because I don't really have a profile, they were basically like, it's great. We love it. But like, um, which, you know, I find is, Mm -hmm. is sort of a frustrating reality of of the world we it's live in, it's true and like, it's
0: not true. I, I, right. I see that. I see both sides of the coin. It's like you don't have to go to like the five fanciest publishers, but you could go to some pretty reputable presses that will do a really good job with a book. You know, so um, I try to dissuade. Yeah, and I was saying that to
1: to Nick, like Ellison, who was representing the book, I was like, I don't really, you know, I don't, I'm not looking for money. You have to really, go to but...
0: Scribner and get an advance. You can just go to a so, really good press. And you that know? was kind
1: of where he was going. He was trying to sell it, you know, for $50,000. Right. He wanted the
0: splash. Yeah. He wanted the splash. And that's <laughs> I was what, like, and I that's just what... <laughs> want,
1: I just want to publish, but like, whatever. I, you know, I, I, by the same token, I, I wasn't really in the mood to write a lot, a lot. I'd been paid to write it and I didn't really want to write the rest of it for free
0: yeah so. right so know thyself as a writer well we're gonna <laughs> we're, we're gonna wrap this because i try to keep these uh I- podcast interviews short and sweet but i've really enjoyed talking with you so this is probably going to be one of my longer longer episodes because i can't think of a single thing to cut you've just provided so much You
1: <laughs> <of me, laughs> oh, well, thanks for having listeners. me it's really great to talk about all this
0: I just had one last question before we went out. When I got sober, you know, I went through that phase where I was like, am I ever going to write again? Is my writing going to change? What am I going to become as a writer? And now eight, eight years later, I, I realize I have changed as a writer in sobriety. Did your writing change when you stopped drinking?
1: It's a tough question. I mean, I think it's so hard to evaluate, I find. I'd like to think I'm always getting better. I live in fear of getting worse, (laughs) you know, (laughs) and I mean, I think I'm not sure it affected the actual content in any way, except that I was able to show up for it in a way that I hadn't been before Mm -hmm. where, you know, I didn't put so much I still struggle with this to be honest where I didn't put so much effort into the outcome of things and where I tried to have more fun writing I mean the very best things I have written without exception are the things where I wasn't trying to sell it I wasn't thinking about the end game I was writing it because I thought it was fun or funny or interesting because I had some passion for it as opposed to being like it's diehard in a pyramid you know (laughs) You know, it was really, <laughs> and like, I think that that's what I discovered in stand up to some degree is like the audience doesn't know what they want. What the audience wants is an authentic experience with you. Mm-hmm. And I think as a writer, that's where the gold is, you know, is like, trying to be true to yourself to kind of discover what makes you laugh what engages your curiosity what is the the outcomes you are trying to explore and you know and that's where you'll that's where i've had success anyway
0: well that's golden advice thank you so much and it's been great having you on the show
1: thanks for having me
0: keep writing
1: (laughs) yeah please thanks
0: you've been listening to, you should write a book about that. If you enjoyed our episode, tell a friend to listen, subscribe and review on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts.